following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Samuel 10. If you don't have a Bible, there are hardback black Bibles under every single chair. You can open one of those up to to page 232. You can open a phone or a tablet. If you're online with us, we love you as well. We're glad you're here as well. There's a little Bible tab. 1 Samuel 10 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, Hey, here's the question. Uh, By a show of hands, this is a safe place. Anybody want to admit that they are a Star Wars fan in here? Wow. Okay. I didn't think there would be quite so much gusto with that, but um, (laughs) all right. And I don't want to hear any of the caveats, like I'm an original Star Wars fan, none of that new stuff. Like, all right, ease up, okay? Like, we can all agree that the new ones are really bad, okay? But but let's just, let whatever whatever genre of Star Wars you might be a fan of, um, whether it's an old school fan or you like, like the new ones or whatever, I think that all parties can agree that the Mandalorian on Disney Plus was the legit one. <laughs> and, and if you disagree with me, you are welcome at Fathom to be incorrect, okay? Uh, all the time. Uh, but the Mandalorian, I watch a show. I'm a big Star Wars fan. I, I don't like to talk about it too much. Actually, I limit myself to once a year to talk about Star Wars from the stage because I just feel like I don't want to be that guy, all right? But... Um, But the main kind of line or theme that you get in The Mandalorian is this line, this is the way. Says it all the time, okay? Every time a difficult situation or decision comes up and they have to make a decision, they would say, this is the way. Whenever the Mandalorian's wants or desires started to rub against the way of his people, the Mandalorians, he would say, this is the way, all right? And that's what I'm calling this sermon today. The title of this sermon is, This is the Way. You see, today is where we put the last couple of sermons together. We're walking verse by verse through the book of 1 Samuel, and I just want to give us a quick context here, because today kind of, it's like the end of the last three weeks of stuff. The story began with, uh, in chapter 9, the introduction of a character named Saul, son of Kish. And Saul uh, is the response to Israel's demand of God for a king. Israel wants a king, and essentially they are rejecting God, Yahweh, as their king. And God will, he's already said, he will lovingly but firmly give them what they want. He's going to give them a king. So in a seemingly random set of ordinary circumstances, Saul ends up on the hunt for some lost donkeys. We talked about this two weeks ago, okay? And he meets on this seemingly coincidental, just so happened to kind of event, he meets Israel's greatest prophet, a guy named Samuel. And then last week in chapter 10, Samuel met Saul and he anointed him with oil over him privately as Israel's first king. He's going to be the king. He anoints him privately, and then he gives him three kind of prophecies or signs to confirm this calling to be king. Now, today, as we finish up chapter 10, the story uh, is, is where we find the public anointing, the public proclamation of his kingship. Remember, Saul has been anointed as king, but it was just he and Samuel. Nobody else knows what's going on. 
and now it's all going to come into the, 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 the public with this today. And so we're going to see that there is a way that this stuff happens. This is the way. There's a way that this stuff happens, and I think it's directly then applicable to our lives. So we're going to work through the text, okay? I'll explain some of it, and then we'll bring application in the end. Let's get to work. 1 Samuel chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 17. So look at your text with me. Verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzvah. And he said to the people of Israel... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Okay, stop. Like I said, we have come to the moment of Saul being publicly proclaimed as king, but just so that the people don't think that God, in fact, giving them their request, giving them a king is in some way a sign of his pleasure over that request or his pleasure or blessing over the people, Samuel gives one final warning. He like loads it up one more time. He says, hey, just, just so you know, remember, you're rejecting God right now. This isn't like a party to celebrate. You're saying no to God as king. And yeah, we'll give you another king, but, but this isn't a win for you. He does this one more time. Don't misinterpret this as God's favor on you just because you're getting what you asked for. All right, and, and, and this is very reminiscent of what Samuel did in chapter 8 when they initially ask for a king. And you might say, well, you know, what use does this do one more time? Like, why would, who cares, Samuel, if you re- rebuke the people one more time, if you're just going to give them a king anyway? What's the point of this? But I just want to offer this as one more evidence of God's persistence and his relentless pursuit of his people. Okay, over and over and over again, even in the midst of their sin and the judgment, God is beckoning his people back to obedience. Listen, God is going to keep calling to us from his word until we listen to him. You ever experienced this in your life? Like you just want to do your thing. You just want to do your way. But in all sorts of weird little things, it's like God just keeps reminding you, hey, this is the way. It's like it shows up in such random occurrences. And you're like, will God just leave me alone? And the answer is like, no, he, he ain't going to do that. He is relentless in the pursuit of his people. And so even in the midst of their rebellion, he's like, one more time, one more time, you're being disobedient. You're being disobedient. Even if they weren't going to follow God's way, he was going to remind them of his way. This is the way. He says it right here. But the people are obstinate, okay? And so he says at the very end, the verse we just read, 19, he says, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Now, verse 20 Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near 
by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. (laughs) This is a weird passage. Verse 23. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. All right. So what was privately known to Samuel and to Saul with that little anointing last week is now made known publicly as Saul is chosen to be king over Israel. But it's done through a little process that we read about. The the process is called the choosing of lots. Okay, the lot. Okay, this is a method that's used a number of times in the Bible to determine God's will. They would cast lots choose lots. Most famously, you might know from Acts chapter one, when you have 11 apostles, because Judas Iscariot is no longer, and they need to choose a 12th apostle to mirror the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they cast lots. You can read about it in Acts chapter one. But Samuel here, he knew that Israel wouldn't believe that Saul was God's chosen king solely based on his testimony. It didn't help his case that he's hiding out in the luggage, right? But Samuel knew that Israel wasn't going to trust his word alone. They hadn't listened to him at all for the last few chapters. They haven't heeded any of Samuel's warnings. Why would they just believe him on this one? Why would they? Israel is rejecting God. They are being faithless. Furthermore, if you remember last week, the people were shocked when Saul started prophesying, like that he would even be considered. Remember they said, is Saul also among the prophets? Like, this dude ain't material for the king. He's not king material. And the word of God, like the word of God's prophet, Samuel, isn't going to be enough for these people. It's not going to be enough to satisfy them. Therefore, he decides to choose some lots. So every tribe of every, and every family uh, is given a chance. They're, they're, they're chosen by lot. They're given a chance so that it would seem to the people that this is God's clear will. Okay, this method, it would be clear to everyone that Saul was appointed to be king by God and not just Samuel's buddy or something. Okay? Now, once again, you see that even in their rejection of God, it's still going to be God's way. He's in, he's in control. This is the way. He's showing us that. And, and, and we get this weird little bit about him hiding in the baggage. Like, sometimes I think people make a bit too much about that passage. He's not exactly helping himself at that moment, right? But, but, but not even, like, I just think it's interesting that Saul doesn't even think Saul should be king. That's important, right? But, and it might be, there's some commentators who think this might be some foreshadowing for Saul's future character. I, it could be, okay? I don't think we make too much out of this. The reality is this. Once they drag him out of the baggage room or whatever, into the light, and they see how handsome and tall he is, They don't care anymore who he is. Long live the king. He looks the part, we'll take him. We'll take him. There's a theme in the Bible that that we judge people from the outside, but God sees the heart. Well, these people, they don't care about the heart. 
He's a foot taller than all of us and he looks pretty good. He could be on the cover of GQ. Make him king. Make him king. But now here's where things get interesting, okay? Verse 25. You may not think this is interesting, but it is. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Verse 27. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Okay. The lot has fallen to Saul. Everybody got a fair swing at the kingship here. And there are still some who don't buy in. And that's true today. Even when God's way is made crystal clear, there will always be some who reject it. That's what's happening here. But then verse 25 is actually, I think, the interesting verse in this section because it says, Samuel writes, the, this is the exact language, he writes the rights and the duties of the kingship. That's the language. The rights and the duties of the kingship. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated rights and duties here is actually the same Hebrew word we found back in chapter 8, verse 11, when Samuel is warning Israel about the way that kings would customarily rule. I'm going to put it up on the screen to remind us, okay? Back in verse 11 of chapter 8, he said this. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take, and then it goes on and on and on. The word, the ways, that's translated there is this word mishpat. Mishpat, okay? That's translated the ways in chapter 8, and it's the exact same Hebrew word that is translated the rights and duties in our passage, the ways of the king would be to take and to take and to take from the people. We covered that a couple weeks ago. But the difference here in these two passages is the use of the word king in verse 11 of chapter 8. Okay, These will be the ways of the king. And then if you read our passage, it doesn't say king. It says the rights and the duties of the kingship. Or maybe a better translation, of the kingdom. The ways of the king, the rights and the duties of the kingship, of the kingdom. Now, I bring this up to you because in front of all of Israel, as Samuel anoints Saul to be the first king over Israel, he writes a document that prescribes how that king is to function in the kingdom. He gives them rules for how he is to rule God's people. I'll put it like this. The ways of the king must be subservient to the ways of the kingdom. He's not allowed to do whatever he wants. See, Israel's king will not go ruling any way he likes. He's not a true sovereign like many kings were at that point in time. He's more like a vice king. 
He is. He's not the king. He is like a vice king himself under the law of God. Even in giving them a king, God is still ruling. This is the way. The people wanted a king like all the other nations. We want to just be like everybody else, but God graciously will not give them that. This is the way. I need you to repeat that after me, just like the Mandalorian, okay? We'll just... So then, that's our text. Happy birthday. Just what you were hoping for this morning, right? I hope you noticed a theme in those verses. Okay, Samuel reminded the people that they are not following God's way in their demand for a king. Then Saul is chosen by God's way so that no one could could object to that choice, and yet they still object to it. And finally, when Saul, even when he's made king, he still must follow God's way in this kingdom. It's not his way. This is the way. Now, last week, my big idea was that that we're called to obey God's word. I, I mean, I hammered heavy on obedience. You're called to take God at his word. You're called to do what he says, or to use the language of this week, if I took it to this week, we are called to follow the way. We're called to follow God's way. This is the way, and the job of the Christian is to follow that way. That's your job if you're a follower of Christ. But now here's the rub where this, the, the obedience to the law of God starts to bristle on us as evangelical Protestants. Here's the rub. Because we're Protestants, that means we are in the line of tradition from the Reformation. In this Reformation tradition, The Reformation was founded upon grace and not the law, right? Salvation is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the reformer's creed. So then, how does obedience to God's rules or way or law, how does that come into play for us who are under God's grace? How do these fit together? It's one of the most common questions I get. Okay, and we'll spend the rest of our time today digging into this, but what's the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of the rules for the Christian in light of being saved by grace alone? If the gospel is grace through faith in Christ alone, then what is the rule book for? What's the law for? And when I say that law, I don't simply mean like Old Testament laws about diets, like not eating shrimp, like washing your clothes a certain way and breaking some pottery when it gets moldy. Like, I'm not just talking about that. I am, but I'm not just talking about that because if you read your New Testament and don't fool with me and say, well, it's just grace in the New Testament. Now, there's a lot of rules from, by the way, Jesus. All love, all grace. No, he gives you rules. He gives you laws. Here's just a few of the things that Jesus said. Don't be angry with people. Don't lust. Don't get divorced. Don't take oaths. Don't retaliate when somebody wrongs you. Hey, give to the needy. Pray. When you pray, here's how you should pray. When you fast, here's how you should fast. Don't amass treasures for yourself on earth. Don't hoard it all, okay? Don't be anxious. He tells you that. It's a commandment. Don't be anxious. How do we do that? Don't judge others. We all like that one. That's the only rule of Jesus the world likes. Don't judge me, bro, right? Don't judge. Build your life on the rock. That's a commandment. Build your life on something firm. 
And by the way, that's only from one of his sermons. Those rules. These are commands. These are laws. This is the way. So what do we do with these? If we're saved by grace alone, because we believe that, what's the Christian's relationship to the law? Well, we get to do some theology this morning, which I love, okay? The, same, the very same reformers who gave us grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the solas of the Reformation, they also gave us what is known as the threefold use of the law. The threefold use of the law. And it's in order to show Christians the importance of God's rules in the Christian life. So that's what we're going to look at. The three uses of the law. I'll put all three up on screen. The first one is this. The law is to mirror. The law is a mirror. It, it mirrors to us human sinfulness. It illuminates for us, to us, the ways that things have gone awry in us. It shows us where we're out of line with God. It shows us where we're sick. The law is a diagnostic tool. It's a mirror. It reflects something to you. So the way I've illustrated this historically is that more than 10 years ago, uh, I got a phone call from my mom because uh, she was having severe stomach pain. Severe stomach pain, uh, and I took her to the emergency room, uh, and she had a large section of her bowel surgically removed, and we were told that that was the blockage was in fact a tumor. Uh, now they weren't sure if the tumor was cancerous or not, so there was hope at that moment. But the next step after that surgery was to have a PET scan. A PET scan is kind of like a CAT scan or like an MRI, but it's specifically to try and identify where cancer is in your body. If I'm way off on that, any doctors or nurses in the, in the room, just let me know afterwards, okay? But that's how I understood it. So she signs up for a PET scan. They throw her in that tube. The tube does its noise thing and does whatever it, the tube does. The scan does its job. And a week later, we end up in her oncologist's office to receive the results. And the results weren't good. Tumor was cancer, but what was worse was that the cancer had spread to her lymph nodes in her hip. And apparently, the lymph node system is like an interstate highway to the rest of your body. And so her doctor says this, you have stage four colorectal cancer. We've got to hit it with heavy radiation. We've got to hit it for chemo with high effective efficiency chemo for six months, and then we will drop that dose to what they called maintenance chemo for as long as we have to, as long as there's evidence of disease. You probably have five years to live. Now, here's where this comes back to the law. The scans, the PET scan, the MRI, the CT scan, the scans are like the law. They showed us that mom had a problem. They actually pinpointed exactly where that problem was. You see what I'm talking about here? Without the scan, we wouldn't have known that this was cancer. Without the scan, we don't know that the cancer has spread to her lymph system and is now kind of moving its way through her body. The scan shows us what's wrong with us. The law, it shows us What's wrong with us? Where there's cancer in us, it mirrors to us. That's the first use of the law. It's very effective. 
The second use of the law is to curb. The law mirrors, but then the law curbs. It's meant to curb evil. It shows us, the law shows us what can happen to us if we fail to obey it. And it deters some evil choices. It is meant to curb evil. So the law, to some extent, can inhibit lawlessness with its threats of judgment. I mean, that's essentially the idea here. This is, I think, what Samuel is doing at the beginning of our passage when he's like, he warns them before they start casting lots. He warns them once more, you're disobeying God's law. He's trying to say, hey, the judgment's coming. Are you sure you want this king? He's trying to warn them. That's what the law does. I'll illustrate like this for this one. Um, my oldest nephew, who is now uh, a 16, 17-year-old guy, uh, when he was uh, little, he was potty training, like most humans do, okay? And, uh, and when he was going to the bathroom, you know, kind of doing his thing, uh, and he would succeed, he would potty train, he would succeed, they would always celebrate like someone had just split the atom open or something, Right? I mean, everybody would just freak out. They're like, he went, he went on the potty? Yeah! Get the camera! Call, call Grammy, we'll FaceTime her, right? Give him, a, give him a piece of chocolate. Wash your hands first, bro. But like, here, you, you celebrate the success of going potty, okay? But you see, going potty is really a two-part equation. If you've got kids, you know this. But part one is going potty. Part two is cleaning yourself up after going potty, okay? Because once your kid knows how to do that, then it's freedom, right, for the parents. Well, my nephew nailed the first half, okay? But then he did what every child does. Finished his business, and he did this. Dad! I need help, right? If you still do this, there's a problem, all right? So my brother-in-law, he walks into the bathroom and he sees, and they've celebrated, you know, they've had the M&Ms a number of times or whatever. And he's like, hey, buddy, when do you think you want to start learning to wipe yourself? And he says, well, dad, I don't want to get poop on my hands. <laughs> my brother-in-law, he's like, well, buddy, I don't want to get poop on my hand either. <laughs> so my nephew thinks on it for a moment. And then he says, yeah, you're right. We should get mom in here. <laughs> True story. True story. I believe my nephew at 16 does know how to clean himself up now, so that's good. But, and I know that's silly. I know that's a silly illustration. But the second use of the law is a deterrent. It's poop on your hand. And that's the first time that has ever been linked in a sermon. <laughs> If you don't obey these rules, there will be consequences. Okay, the law mirrors, but it also warns, it curbs those evils. And then finally, the third use of the law is that it is meant to guide. It's meant to guide us. The law is a guide to reveal how we should live, to reveal what's pleasing to God and what's in our best interests. Believe it or not, God's law is not about robbing you from all that life has to offer. It is, in fact, the only way to get all that life has to offer. 
It shows us what's wrong in us and the consequences of breaking it, but it actually shows us the path to life. It guides us. It guides us to the good life that God has for us. So C.S. Lewis, when talking about the three uses of the laws, gives this helpful illustration. He says the law is like a map, like a map, all right? Uh, Now, a number of years ago, I went to Dallas-Fort Worth for an Acts 29 conference, uh, and I had been once before, but I, I don't know Dallas very well. I don't know the DFW area, but I rented a car, and I was driving all over the place, all over the DFW Metroplex, okay? So literally the conference was in a city called Irving. I was staying with some friends in in Dallas proper. I met a guy from our church who was up in Fort Worth, okay? I went to a church in Flower Mound. I mean, I was all over the Metroplex. And let me tell you, there is no way I could have gotten any of those places without this little device. I mean, there's this old thing called a paper map that I may have been able to figure something out with, But goodness, thank the Lord for Siri and the fact that she knew where she was going, okay? Because I'm not from there. I've never lived there, all right? I had no idea. So I just opened up my Maps app, and the map showed me all the roads and the highways and the interstates. It even directed me around traffic and to the goal of my destination. It was incredible. It was a miracle. The common grace of the Lord. Thank you, Apple. (laughs) The map. The law, it's what guides us in this life. As Christians, the law shows us what is pleasing to God and what is best for human flourishing. So I'll quote this scripture from Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 15 says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's an if-then sort of statement. If you love me, from Jesus' lips, you will keep my commandments. If you love, you will obey. Jesus just said, I mean, that's, that's in the modern vernacular, he just said, this is the way. And if you love me, you're going to keep the way. And by the way, if you don't keep the way, you might should question if you love him. I don't want to freak anybody out, but... The opposite is true. But I think people today are skeptical with God's ways. I think we're skeptical. I mean, if we're honest, and I know this is church, no place to be honest, but like if we are honest with ourselves, we're skeptical about God's ways. Listen to me. You are skeptical about God's ways. First of all, we don't even like to admit that there is the way. Like there's a way, right? Isn't that exclusive? Isn't that elitist? Isn't that arrogant? Like, Jesus, maybe just change it to, this is one way. That'd be a lot more PC. uh, My friends at work would like that message a lot more than this is the way. This is just one way. So that's the first reason why we don't like it. It does, listen, it is exclusive. (laughs) And it's the most inclusive thing in the world. Second, second, even within the church, even within God's people, There's this mark of our culture right now that that we really want to feel Jesus and be spiritual and like get this whole thing of Christ in us without the morality attached to it, right? Like right now we want heart intimacy, but we don't want to bring our entire lives into submission under Christ. 
I mean, I want Jesus. I just don't want all these rules. And listen, each one of us has the rules that we buck against more than others. Every single one of us does. I do, you do. I promise with a little self-reflection, you'll find those. The biblical sexual ethic is just like one man, one woman, one marriage, one lifetime. That seems so prudish. That seems so restrictive. That seems so limiting. God just must not know my situation. It's cheaper for us to live together. You wouldn't buy a car without taking it for a test drive now, would you? That's the excuse. God's law, though, is clear. One man, one woman, one lifetime. The biblical ethic about turning the other cheek. I'm just bringing up the ones that Jesus brings up, okay? Turning the other cheek, that's crazy talk. God, help us when somebody posts something that that I disagree with online. Turn the other cheek. No way, I'm getting the last word 28 comments later. Are you kidding me? When someone wrongs you, turn the other cheek. I don't want to be a doormat. Well, Jesus stood silent as they accused and mocked and beat him. That ethic is is, that's trouble. The biblical ethic of Sabbath, the law of Sabbath, seems unattainable. Taking a full day to stop and rest and be refreshed in Christ, like to take a full day. No, I got work to do. Hashtag no days off, right? I got to hit the gym. I got to go to the King Supers. They finally restock some stuff, right? Like I'm ready to go. I can't be taking a day off because ain't nobody else going to take a day off and they're getting one day ahead of me if I don't take that full seventh day. Anybody in here really practicing good, faithful Sabbath? Don't raise your hands because I know you're lying. (laughs) I love you. Drug and alcohol use and abuse on the rise. There's nothing wrong. Well, drug, yeah, but... I have a friend who says, there's nothing wrong with beer. It's just a sin to drink light beer. So, you know, uh, I, I just re- read this article by a friend of ours, Jen Oshman, over at another church. Forty-some percent is the rise of alcohol abuse in COVID among women. Y'all, this is a problem. And not just with those people out there. Pornography use is widely accepted even within Christendom as just either a dirty little secret that doesn't affect anybody or at worst, self-care. I'm just telling you, everybody's like, yeah, I want Jesus. I want salvation. I want all the feels. I want all that Jesus stuff, all right? I want to experience him, but don't you put those laws on me. Don't you put those rules on me. I want intimacy but I don't want to have to deal with the whole Bible. Maybe some of it. I like that don't judge me part. But I don't want to have to submit my whole life and mind to that. I don't want the theology. I don't want the ethics. Okay, I don't want to have to change the way that I do things. But I do want to have a nice coffee chat with Jesus. I do want to have this like feel thing going on. I want spirituality. I want meaning. But I don't want the rules. The law is a guide for us. And if you want intimacy with God, if you love him, then you will keep his commandments. You cannot have love with God apart from the law of God. 
So those are the threefold uses of the law. They actually were, were penned by John Calvin. I didn't tell you that because I know some of you guys are anti-Calvin, okay? But that's who it came from, a reformer. The grace alone guy gave us those. The law mirrors, the law curbs, and the law guides. This is the way. So let's end this. Let's bring this full circle, okay? In verses 17 through 19 in our text, Samuel reminds the people of God's way. He's relentless in his pursuit of his people. He wants to be their king, but they're rejecting him. So he warns them one last time, and then in verses 20 through 24, Samuel gives Saul as king to the people. But listen, it's not even done in the way that they want it. It's done God's way. He will not be stopped. And then in verses 25 through 27, even though Saul is made king, he's not going to be a king like all the other nations have kings. No, Israel's king must submit to the ways of the kingship. That's what's presented to us in the text. And now hear me. That little book that Samuel writes down the rules for Saul, they're not meant to destroy his kingship but they're meant to allow it to function properly. This isn't meant to be a burden to Saul. It's meant to set him up for success. And we're going to see he does not follow them. But the same is true for us as we relate to God's way. Okay, listen, God's way isn't meant to be heavy. It's a burden that's light. God's way isn't about robbing you of your happiness. It's about giving you actually all the joy that this life has to offer. God's way isn't meant to keep you from life. It's about giving you full life. God's way isn't shackling you. It's freeing you. It's setting you free. This is the way. Do you believe this? I mean, back to what I asked last week. Why aren't you obeying him? Why aren't you obeying his word? You have to do that hard work to think about this. Do you not trust that his way is actually better? Because I'll tell you, many times I think I'm much better at running my life than God is. Do you believe he's holding out on you? That's what Adam and Eve thought. Do you believe there's something better for you out there? Don't want to FOMO this thing with Jesus too much? Might be something better coming down the, the path? You believe you're going to miss out on life's best? You're not going to be fulfilled as a person if you don't get what the world's telling you? So back to my mom's cancer. The scans showed that she had a real problem, but the scans are ultimately powerless to heal her. Right? No matter how many times she gets in those tubes and gets those scans, they're powerless to do anything about the problem that they show. Scans are only going to diagnose that something's wrong. They can never be the cure. Now listen, the law of God, the rules, the way, they are good, they are right, they are holy, they are from God, and they do a wonderful job of letting us know that something is really wrong with us. But let's be good Reformation Christians. The law can never heal you. And you know what? Back to my, my trip to Texas and the, the map. Okay, when I open that map and I see those roads and I chart my course and I figure out where I'm supposed to go, that map itself is not Texas, right? 
Like, that's not Texas. It's not the same as the actual place. And like, if I pulled one of those Joey from Friends moments, I set it down, I step in, and I'm like, here I am. Dated myself on that reference. (laughs) It'd be silly for me to say, well, I've been in Texas. No, the map, it's a guide. It's, the law is a guide, but it must never become the destination. That's when it becomes legalism. Can you follow me here? The law is like a scan. Christ is the cure. The law is like a map. Christ is the destination. This is the way. Why? Because of who it leads to. And I just want to earnestly beckon with you. Like I earnestly believe that there are some of you here today and you say you want the king. Like you wouldn't be here if you didn't say you want the king. Like you want the king. You say you want him. You just don't want all the ways of the kingdom. Well, then there are others who are on that opposite side and you want the formula. You just want the rule. Just give me the list. Just give me what I got to do, okay? But I got no time for a relationship. Just give me the list. I'll check off my boxes and then I'll feel good about myself. But listen, relationship without rules is mere sentimentality. It's a hallmark card. And rules without relationships, listen, is death. It's legalism. It is not the way. Both errors leave you unable to live a life of joy and of love that's available to you in Christ Jesus. He's the one who says this. These are his words. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I just want to plead with you to consider the unreal offer of an intimate relationship with Jesus, by the way, that actually changes your life that is accompanied with a way of living that's full of joy and full of mercy and full of justice and full of compassion. This is the way. It's my hope you'll get this. It's my hope that the Spirit will open up some eyes and hearts this morning. We are way over. Let's pray together. Lord, we bless you today. We bless you because you're not only the pointer to the way, but you are the way. You are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. We confess this and affirm it once again. Thank you for your servant Samuel and the way that you use him and even for Saul as a model for us. But Lord, we pray that we would not fall into the traps and to the errors of lawlessness, of self-governing, but Lord, that we would fully and finally submit to you. God, I know there's men and women in here who are erring on one of those two sides. They want Christ, but they don't want all the clutter that comes with that. Or they just want, give me the list, and they don't want the love. And both are not the way. God, grow us. Open our eyes to the ways that we are failing in these things, the ways that we are not obedient. And thank you for the grace that you give that allows for us to change. You have not called us to do anything that you will not empower us by your spirit to accomplish. So Holy Spirit, we submit to you once again. We love you, Father. We honor you today. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit.